Hello and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and no guest today, but today I'm going to be talking about something called autosomatism, in particular in regards to homicidal sleepwalking. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to apologize for the late episode. It's, um, I started a job this week and it's kind of thrown a spanner in my timings a bit. But yeah, I'm done with work for the week and I'm going to be trying to get this out by hopefully Thursday night. But we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so, tonight I'm drinking a black beer called Shadow Weaver, which I thought was a great name. So I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's many announcements this week, but um got some interesting guests coming up. So keep an eye on Twitter and maybe Facebook as well. I'm much more active on Twitter, but anytime I get a new guest or something, I tend to announce it on there. So, yeah, let's get into it. Uh, we'll cut to music and be right back. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And we are back. So, let's talk about automatism, which I think I might have said wrong in the intro. So, sorry about that. But yeah, it's a pretty rarely used criminal defense. Um, yeah, it's essentially used as a mental condition defense uh, relating to the mental state of the defendant. Essentially meaning that the defendant wasn't aware of their actions while making movements that constitute the illegal act. And it's essentially denying that the person was acting in the sense that the criminal law of the area demands. So it's a denial of proof and where the defendant asserts that the offense wasn't as it's made out to be. And the prosecution doesn't actually, doesn't have to disprove the defense itself, but the prosecution uh, has to prove all the elements of the offense, including the voluntary acts requirement. Uh, so essentially they have to prove that they meant to do it. A few limitations, um, as we'll go into a little bit in a minute. Like, um, in English law, generally, um, there are a few uh, exceptions, like prior fault is one of the big ones across a lot of, um, laws where Things like intoxication or drug use beforehand excludes it, even when the act is involuntary, as it's generally seen as self-induced. And under English law, um, internal causes of automatism are generally judged to be insane automatism and result in the special verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity rather than just a simple acquittal of the um, crime. Well, meanwhile, uh, in Australia... The Australian Model Criminal Code Committee state the law as follows. At the minimum, there needs to be some operation of the will before a physical movement is described as an act. The physical movement of a person who is asleep, for example, probably should not be regarded as acts at all, uh, and certainly should not be regarded as acts for the purpose of criminal responsibility. These propositions are embodied in the rule that people are not held responsible for involuntary acts, that is, physical movements which occur without there being any will to perform the act. 
this situation is usually referred to as automatism. So yeah, they're pretty similar across the board for the most part, from what I can tell. I am not a law student. I am not a psychologist. I'm a geologist, so uh, I'm just kind of hoping it holds together well. <laughs> yeah, based on my research. So we'll see how it goes. But yeah, like in the US, for example, in People vs. Huey Newton in 1970, the code holds that unconsciousness when not self-induced uh, by stuff like voluntary intoxication is a complete defense to a criminal act, even though the defendant's acts seem very goal-orientated. And the medical evidence for that case was a, a gunshot wound which penetrates in a body cavity. The abdominal cavity or the thoracic cavity is very likely to produce a profound reflex shock reaction that's quite different to a gunshot wound which penetrates only skin and muscle and it's not at all uncommon for a person shot in the abdomen to lose consciousness and to go into this reflex shock condition for short periods of time up to half an hour or so. But said that the reflexive activity or, or the unconscious state doesn't need to cause a physical collapse, but it can exist in like a form where the uh, person affected can physically act. At the same time, it's not conscious of actually doing it. Uh, another example is in R versus Cogden in 1950, uh, which, which from what I can tell was unreported um, at the time, but is noted in a somnambulistic homicide, ghosts, spiders, and North Koreans which was written in 1951, where the defendant struck her daughter on the head with an axe while sleepwalking and dreaming about North Koreans. Her movements were judged to be non-voluntary and she was acquitted. So yeah, it's, it's kind of... It's a defense that's been used a fair few times, uh, which is why I kind of brought it up, because I was quite interested. I didn't realize it was actually used in like more than one or two things. Like, it's still pretty rare, but it's more than just one or two. Like, even Ireland... Um, in Bratty versus Attorney General for Northern Ireland, 1963, yeah, Lord Dunning's dicta, or uh, formal pronouncement, was no act is punishable if it's done involuntary. An involuntary act in this context, some people nowadays prefer to speak of it as automatism, means an act which is done by the muscles without any control by the mind, such as a spasm, a reflex action, or a convulsion, or an act done by a person who is not conscious of what he's doing. Such as an act done whilst suffering from a concussion or while sleepwalking. But it's also referred to in the Swedish Penal Code, and probably a few more, but I haven't had a chance to look them up more. But I think for the most part, it's generally, like, it's generally used for situations involving, like, stuff like hypnotism, concussion, sleepwalking, um, because spasms and reflex actions are less likely to be perceived as criminally liable acts, from what I understand about it. I've got one main case study which I want to go over afterwards, um, but there are more examples, so I'll just uh, throw a few out there. Like in R.V. Burgess, uh, the Court of Appeal ruled that the defendant who uh, injured a woman by hitting her with a video recorder while sleepwalking was insane under McNaughton rules, as at the time of the crime, the defendant must have been suffering from a, to quote, disease of the mind, which is a legal term, not a medical one. There is a difference there. Uh, as the McNaughton rule is a test for criminal insanity. But in that one, uh, Lord Lane said, we accept that sleep is a normal condition, but the evidence in the instant case indicates that sleepwalking, and particularly violence in sleep, is not normal. But the emphasis is more on control rather than consciousness itself. Uh, A guy called Michael Cole said that, on the basis of the available knowledge of human behaviour, it may be suggested that many of the crimes that the courts have decided were committed in an automatistic state, that is, the absence of consciousness, volitional control, or while the mind was a total blank, 
actually may have occurred in a state of diminished consciousness, with the diminished consciousness resulting in diminished conscious control of behavior. Uh, in other words, the individual becomes disinhibited and the behavior that the in- individual would otherwise be able to contain gains expression. So essentially, they may be slightly, con- they may have some consciousness, but um, may not be able to control it. Uh, there was an, a more recent case um, where I won't say the guy's name just because it's it only ha- it happened quite recently. Say so recently, it was just under ten years ago, where the offender strangled his wife during a sleep terror, where he misperceived that there was an intruder on top of her. And also in 1858, there was a, a woman called Esther Griggs who threw her child out of a first floor window, believing that the house was on fire. Are also having a steep terror. The main one I uh, I wanted to talk about was the Parks case in RV Parks, um, which happened in 1987. Uh, it's a pretty famous Canadian case. And it's worth noting that I didn't look too much into what he's doing nowadays, as as he was acquitted of it. I think that I should leave it as I should leave it there. Um, but yeah, we'll get into it anyway. It's kind of a good example of the willingness of the judicial courts to regard a sleepwalker as behaving as an automaton, even though the acts were apparently goal-oriented. So Parks was a 23-year-old Canadian man uh, who was married and had a five-month-old daughter. And he had a very close relationship with his in-laws as well, who were Barbara and Dennis Woods. And the summer before the uh, events of this case occurred, he had developed a gambling problem at the horse races and fell into deep financial problems. And to cover these losses, he took funds from his family's savings and also began to embezzle at work. Uh, later on, prosecutors would contend that Parks defrauded his employer of about $30,500, putting the money into his bank account and also gambling it at his racetracks. Later on, he would be found guilty of that and have to reimburse the entire amount of money. And as in March 1987, his actions were discovered and he was fired from his job for it. And on May 20th, he went to his first Gambler's Anonymous meeting. He also made plans to tell his grandmother about the um, issues on the following Saturday, the May 23rd, and his in-laws on Sunday, May 24th, about his problems and financial difficulties. So early in the morning on May 24th, 1987, Parks literally started sleepwalking and drove 20 kilometers from Pickering, Ontario, to the house of his in-laws in Scarborough, Ontario. And whilst still asleep, he entered the house... It's worth knowing that the, the exact details of order are a bit hazy. They entered a house um, with a tire iron that was in his car boot and also a knife from the kitchen that he found before going to his bedroom where his in-laws Barbara and Dennis were sleeping. And when there, he bludgeoned his mother-in-law and stabbed her multiple times with a kitchen knife before turning on his father-in-law and attempting to strangle him. Like later, Bob would be found in a room five to six feet away from the bedroom, having been stabbed in the chest, the shoulder, and the heart, and also having sustained blunt force injury to a nose iron skull uh, that caused a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And though Dennis was rendered unconscious, his wounds were less severe and he would survive. Uh, have Barbara was not so lucky. And that night, he also picked up the phone in the kitchen and set it down again off the hook. And he also went upstairs to her teenage daughter's bedrooms but stopped outside the door, stood there, and then ran downstairs again and left. Uh, later on, he would, like, he said that he yelled, kids, 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 after hearing the kids yelling, but they said that they only heard him ma- making grunting noises. But after he left, he got back in the car and 
despite being covered in blood, he drove straight to a nearby police station and confessed, turning himself and turning himself in, arriving at 4.45 a.m. and saying, I've just killed someone by bare hands. Oh my god, I just killed someone. I've just killed two people, my god. I've just killed two people with my hands, my god, I've just killed two people. My hands, I just killed two people, I killed them. I just killed two people, I've just killed my mother and father-in-law, I stabbed and beat them to death, it's all my fault. And Park's only defence was that he was asleep during the entire incident and was not aware of what he was doing. And at the trial, he would argue that he was automatistic and not criminally liable. And they say there was a lot of scepticism in regards to this. And in his defence, a doctor testified to his mental state at the time of the murder. And from the doctor's evidence, it was determined that he was sleepwalking at the time of the incident and that he was suffering from a disorder of sleep rather than this neurological, psychiatric or other illness. He did have a history of sleepwalking, though not a massive one, as Kenneth's mother reported that he was a first, that when he was 13 to 14 years old, he, she went to check on him and his legs were going out the sixth floor window, though this is the only case of sleepwalking that she could recall. But his grandfather was also a sleepwalker and would walk around the house and sometimes even cook food without eating it. Um, his wife had no re- recollection of his sleepwalking, but did have recollection of him talking to her in his sleep and also being a deep sleeper and being difficult to awaken. Five neurological experts also confirmed that he was sleepwalking during the time of the incident, and after a careful investigation, uh, specialists could find no other explanation, as Kenneth went underwent a series of sleep tests and psychological tests, where his EEG readings were highly irregular even for a parasomniac. Or someone that has um, sleep disorders that are characterized by unwanted behaviors or perceptions during sleep. Uh, this can include sleepwalking, night terrors, and frequent nightwares, etc. Though irregular readings can occur during sleep when people are under great stress or during substance abuse. Though I haven't seen any evidence of there being any substance abuse involved, there was evidence of great stress. As according to an article from Psychology Today, after he started to gamble heavily, he stopped socializing began to suffer from pressure headaches and his weight increased from 240 to 310 pounds and and he also suffered from insomnia with after going to bed at 11 o'clock he'd watch tv until 2 a.m before falling asleep and for between four and six hours apparently his sleep condition improved after his daughter was born in december uh, 1986 but in march 1987 his mental health deteriorated again having trouble sleeping on most days, and waking up feeling like there was a heavy breathing and a pressure on his chest. Uh, apparently, after seeing a doctor, he was given treatment for asthma, but the symptoms are close to a severe anxiety disorder. And um, the article says that there were clearly underlying emotional problems that he should have sought treatment for. I, I'm i not so... I think that's uh, kind of addictive of the article, having some clear personal opinions written in, as seeing people for anxiety or other mental health conditions is difficult even modern day like in 2018 uh never mind 1987 yeah anyway this um combined with uh that he was very consistent in his stories for more than seven interviews despite apparent repeated attempts of trying to lead him astray um that the timing of events fit perfectly with the proposed explanation and allegedly there's no way of faking uh, eeg results and this led to the jury acquitting parts of the murder of his mother-in-law and the attempted murder of his father-in-law. Though it's not entirely clear why the prosecution didn't call its own experts on sleepwalking, with one ex- explanation being that there was disbelief that the defence could succeed. And medical experts at the trial uh, unanimously agreed that both the accused of sleepwalking and that sleepwalking was not a, quote, disease of the mind, 
and Pranic experts described Kenneth's actions as the result of many circumstances converging. As he had plans to fix his in-law's furnace, uh, was familiar with the route uh, he would have to take to get to their house, was restless from anxiety and worried about um, telling them about his uh, issues, uh, plus the actual financial issues themselves. And according to the Psychology Today article, the experts essentially uh, came to the conclusion that it, it must have occurred to Parks in his sleep that he should fix his in-law's furnace, uh, then getting up and driving to the house before being startled by his in-laws and attacking both of them without knowing what he was doing. However, sleepwalking doesn't automatically lead to a full acquittal, as an involuntary act entitles the, the accused to an unqualified acquittal only if the automatic condition uh, didn't originate in a, quote, disease of the mind uh, that has made the person insane. Um, and in a latter case, uh, the accused was is not entitled to a full acquittal, but only a verdict of insanity. Like, remember that a disease of the mind is a legal term, and because of that, the trial judge can't rely blindly on medical opinion, and also has to consider the likelihood of recurrence and the cause of the act as a condition that's likely to present a recurring danger should be treated as insanity. And a condition stemming from the internal makeup of the accused rather than external factors should also lead to a verdict of insanity. And though these two conditions might seem sufficient to justify less than full acquittal of sleepwalkers that kill, the defense at Parks' trial argued that a combination of the ex- of external factors caused the killing, and it was unlikely that a similar combination of external factors would occur again in the future. So, uh, though he was acquitted, uh, the issue went all the way to the Supreme Court, where the issue was whether the condition of sleepwalking can be classified as non-insane automatism, or whether it should be classified as disease of the mind, and warrant a deal of not guilty for reason of, ex- of insanity, as the distinction is a matter of law and decided by the judges. But when it got to the Supreme Court, the court upheld the acquittal as the evidence presented a reasonable doubt uh, that Parks acted voluntarily, and Chief Justice Antonio Lamer held that the trial judge was correct in his analysis of the evidence and his decision not to characterize sleepwalking as a mental disorder, while also agreeing that, that sleepwalking can negate the voluntary ingredient of the actus reus. Actus reus means an action or conduct, which is a constituent element of a crime, as opposed to the mental state of the accused. And yeah, Parks was not held responsible for her crime, and the Supreme Court of Canada upheld the acquittal in the 1992 decision of R.V. Parks. Um, and while Parks wasn't held responsible for that crime, he did plead guilty to fraud around the time of his mother-in-law's death. And going back to the Psychology Today article, pointing to them, several case, several details of the case were ignored during the trial. And for example, Parks being known to, to have some uncontrollable urges, which led to his gambling debts and the loss of his job. And the fact that Parks had stopped visiting his in-laws after the loss of his job, uh, fearing abandonment. And additionally, he had a fair few arguments with his wife regarding his gambling debts and having joined the uh, gamblers almost under pressure. Uh, the defense attorney also alleged that Parks didn't remember the details of the killing, though he said that he remembered his mother-in-law's face after he killed her and also realized that he killed her after he arrived, arrived at the police station, which led to some doubts of whether he was fully asleep the whole time or whether he could have been conscious but repressed the memories almost immediately. And sleepwalking normally occurs in the deep stage of sleep when slow brainwaves begin to appear. And due to these slow brainwaves, uh, people who are asleep are not normally consciously aware of sensory input from their surroundings. Uh, and there's usually a also a gating mechanism which blocks input from the conscious brain to the motor system. However, in parasomnia, there's a defect in the 
gating mechanism that allows substantial input to it. And due to the failure of this gating mechanism, the brain can issue commands to the muscles during sleep. And this usually ends after childhood due to neurons that release the neurotransmitters that control the uh, gating system having um, finally developed. Sometimes it, they can remain underdeveloped and function less or function less effectively, which can lead to sleep deprivation, fever, anxiety, and some cases sleepwalking uh, in in adulthood. And there is also some similarities with people that are fully awake. For example, sleepwalks having their eyes open um, and they can see their environment, but not consciously. And while they're in a state of deep sleep, the part of the brain in charge of motion is awake while the part of the brain that deals with awareness and cognition remains asleep. So they're essentially both awake and asleep at the same time. While the um, cortex, which deals with thinking and voluntary movement, is also asleep during slow wave sleep. So the movements that ref- that sleepwalkers make are generally um, essentially reflexive. And a sleepwalker's brain can process visual and auditory stimuli from the from their surroundings, um, but processing doesn't doesn't really give any stable activity for it, as brain signals aren't as strong as during waking states. Which why generally uh, sleepwalkers can only complete tasks that they've done hundreds of times before. For example, there was a uh, cook I read about which would, that can make stuff like uh, bolognese and fish and chips while asleep. So it can be relatively complex sometimes, uh, depending on how familiar they are with the task. And generally to navigate safely in their sleep, sleepwalkers have to be in their natural surroundings, yeah, which is why some sleepwalkers can get injured when they're on holiday, as the brain assumes that they're in their normal surroundings. And it's quite common for them to bump into toe, uh, into walls or stub their toes and stuff. For example, in um, 2007, there was one guy who broke a window and crawled out through broken glass shards while sleepwalking in, Mex- in Mexico City while they were staying in a hotel. But these kind of things are going to cast some doubt on whether he was fully asleep, uh, as his actions were very complex rather than just uh, one thing at a time. As complex actions like this in unfamiliar surroundings are pretty unheard of in non-criminal cases. It's unlikely that that much visual information about the environment can be consciously processed for a person to be able to complete uh, very complex actions in unfamiliar surroundings. And Parks hadn't been to his in-law's house uh, for about two months after losing his job uh, before, the, before the killing itself. He would have to make the drive unconsciously in relatively unfamiliar surroundings in the dark of night, while also having to encounter several major intersections that he'd have to manoeuvre unconsciously. And the article brought up that um, drivers that are completely lost in thought but not unconscious um, still miss exits or find themselves taking the most familiar route rather than the one they planned. And sleepwalkers don't normally take long trips during their sleep. For example, Parks' grandfather never left the house while he was sleepwalking. And though there were several people with parasomnia in Parks' family, only one of them left the house during their sleepwalking and just made it outside and just sat there. Like At the same time, he already had plans to go there the night before. Um, so that could have been a strong factor on what, on how he could do it. Uh, in, in the Stephen Wright's case, um, where Stephen Wright uh, had stabbed his wife while allegedly being asleep, the district attorney Chris Frisco said that to carry out relatively complex acts, you have to have some conscious control of what you're doing, which includes, uh, which includes figuring out which end of the knife to hold and which end to stab a person with. And it's also, uh, pretty dubious that he could stay asleep during the ordeal as it is possible to awaken a sleepwalker, though unwise as they may end up confused or terrified. And it's apparently no hard to awaken a sleepwalker as someone in deep sleep. And when Kenneth arrived at a police station, he had severe cuts to his hands, which kind of attested to a struggle with his in-laws, which would have, which almost definitely would have woken him up. 
the police would later um, describe signs of great struggle in the bedroom as the bed was disheveled, the pillows were soaked in blood, and the mattress was moved around uh, enough that the headboard had tipped forward. And on top of that, it is true that the brain might unconsciously go into defense mode if startled. Kenneth also um, said that he remembered his mother-in-law's face, which suggests that he, that later dissociative anesthesia once he got to the police station, as he didn't show any uh, sign of pain as he arrived, which is also a core piece of evidence in the trial, uh, may have not been due to being in a sleepwalking state, but rather as a state of shock or great distress. And going back to when he uh, was calling for the kids, saying kids, kids, and went upstairs... And the kids only heard him saying, hearing grunting noises, which are similar to the kind someone was asleep, is, um, is according to psychology, um, article quite odd. As, um, if he was actually sleepwalking at the time, he wouldn't be able to record the moment so clearly afterwards. However, on the other hand, if he was awake, he wouldn't have made the grunting noises. He just would have yelled as he remembered, which, uh, suggests that his actions may not have been aut- entirely automatic and he would, and he may have been partially conscious. But due to the nature of the actions, he may have repressed the memories of the details. For example, there was another case in in March 2000, where the accused had to undergo hypnosis to remember any of the events, after shooting her daughter and herself. And similar to Parks, she wasn't showing any symptoms of pain from her wounds uh, when the paramedic showed up. And though she was charged with first-degree murder and the death penalty, the judge found her not guilty by reason of insanity and committed her to the custody of the State Department of Health and Hospital Forensic Division. So it's plausible that, um, owing to temporary insanity, that he wasn't fully in control of his actions, even if he was conscious of them, and the actions were voluntary but unintentional. And as people who are insane cannot intend to perform a criminal act because they either don't know the act is wrong or they can't fully control their actions. There was another point that was raised that I saw where um, there was a possibility that was that would be consistent with the events, as there's a common assumption that sleepwalkers are deeply asleep and automatons. However, there's a lot of reports of sleepwalkers suggesting that hallucination or dreamlike states of mind often take place during sleepwalking. For example, uh, Alison Bear, who was a 31-year-old woman from Idaho, was having a nightmare that she was in a deep river and getting tired. In her dream, she realized that she was drowning, before waking up and realizing that she was actually drowning in real life, and ended up in the river outside of her home after sleepwalking. And there's another pretty famous case of um, the Australian artist Lee Hadwin, who would um, who would get up at night in his sleep and make surrealistic and fantastical artworks, and usually having no recollection of having completed the works overnight, uh, but finding them the next day. And I looked them up, and they're actually pretty good paintings. <laughs> like, they're definitely better than I could do, though apparently he had no interest in painting or ability to do it during the day. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of points of, um, even if he was somewhat conscious... It's possible that his verbal reports reflect hallucinations rather than an attempt to mislead the jury. But yeah, there's a lot of um, interesting things going on there. Well, on that, I think that's actually all I have. So yeah, hopefully that went well, because there was a lot of stuff that I didn't really fully get when I started reading it, but I think I do now. <laughs> but it's a, uh, it's a pretty well-known case and um, seems to be relatively... It seems to be relatively well publicized, though I'd never heard of it until like last week. But yeah, so I hope you enjoyed that. We'll cut to music and be right back. And we are back. So, hope you enjoyed that. I don't know, I find it quite thought-provoking. Um, hopefully I gave it, I did it justice. 
uh, there was some pretty complicated stuff in the psychology part of it. As like I said earlier, I'm not a psychologist or a law student, or I'm a geologist. <laughs> but, so yeah, that was automatism. But yeah, from that, I think we can just wrap it up. Don't think there's too much else to say towards the end of it. I've got some pretty interesting guests coming up in the future. For example, next Wednesday, I'll be recording with Mark Bullen, who's an expert in Russian prison tattoos and Russian-speaking organized crime gangs. Uh, so that should be quite an interesting one to look out for. So my, my plugs will be the Murderly website. Uh, that's murder.ly, and you can find a bunch of really cool podcasts over there. Give, give some shout-outs to people that aren't on there. Uh, you, can t- you can check out my friends at Soul Story Podcast, uh, which is an RPG podcast, people that like tabletop gaming. If you want stuff that's a bit more similar to this, or true crimey-ish, uh, you can check out Voices of the Victim, which is great. And also, and just because I haven't done it in a while, also Cult of Domesticity and, and All Crime No Castle, as I love all those guys. So, social media, we have Facebook at facebook.com slash rocks, Twitter at, and Instagram at Rocks. Email, you can contact me there for pretty much anything. Like you can yell at me, or say hi, or say nice things. Or even recommend things for me to check out uh, at botrpodcast at gmail.com. There's a Patreon if you want to support the show at patreon.com slash blood on the rocks. We also got a new review from WI Appraiser, which reads endlessly fascinating. Five stars. This podcast tells endlessly fascinating stories in a very engaging way. I highly recommend this podcast as I look forward to every new episode. So thank you so much for that. And yeah, I think that's everything. So... Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Don't forget to tell your friends. And have a great week. I'll see you soon.